Welcome to another edition of the New Hampshire Journal Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham, managing editor of nhjournal.com. Thanks so much for being here. We've got Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, who was tooling around New Hampshire uh, the last day or two. Gee, I wonder why. And uh, so we got a chance to sit down and chat with him. And you don't want to miss it, particularly his comments on uh, public policy and on the base of the GOP. A reminder that this podcast is made possible thanks to, as they say at NPR, people like you who subscribe to the New Hampshire Journal newsletter. The newsletter is absolutely free at nhjournal.com. You can sign up for it right there. There's a little button. Or you can sign up for it for free and still pay. That's right. We encourage you to support us. We have like a little support click thing at the bottom of the page where you can uh, support the cause or you can subscribe for $4.99 a month to the free newsletter. It's free. You pay $4.99. Somehow, a, a friend of mine who's a big Adam Smith reader explained how it all works. I don't know. But uh, next time you open the newsletter, see that opportunity, please support it. Also, we have support of great people like Dr. Bruce Houghton at perfectsmiles.com in Nashville. Perfectsmiles.com. Go there. Watch the videos uh, by people like me and Howie Carr and others who are thrilled customers of Dr. Bruce and the great job he's done on our smile and he will do the same for you and he's conveniently located in Nashville so easy to get to great job the latest tech the latest strategies if you've been told you have a problem smile or the the expense of getting your perfect smiles too high trust me see my buddy Dr. Bruce Houghton at perfectsmiles.com I've got some random New Hampshire Granite State punditry uh, coming up in just a moment but first let's chat with why, Governor Larry Hogan, what do you happen to be doing here in New Hampshire? Well, it's a beautiful state to visit. Uh, we're, we got a b- pretty busy day. We actually uh, we came up to New England because we're going to uh, the National Governors Association in Maine, in Portland, Maine. And uh, But I came up a little early because I wanted to meet some folks throughout New Hampshire. So we're busy all day. Uh, we just uh, finished up a meeting with some folks in the real estate industry. We're going to be meeting several other kind of small business organizations and groups. And I did a town hall last night with some grassroots folks for uh, No Labels, which I'm the co-chair of. And just a great uh, great time for a little visit, trying to get, get to uh, know some of the folks here in New Hampshire. So that whole uh, first in the nation primary thing, just a total coincidence, right? You know, it did cross my mind that that, uh, that you do play a, a major oversized role in that process. But, you know, uh, you know, certainly I'm, it's great to be back in New Hampshire. And, uh, you know, I've, uh, I'm going to focus on being the best governor I can be in Maryland until next January. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think it's important to get out here and see what the people of New Hampshire think. We're going to get to all the political stuff that you would expect to talk to. And I'm sure you've answered a thousand questions about Trump, blah, blah, blah. But I want to talk to you about a policy issue. You have a background in real estate, in development, and America's in the middle of a housing crisis. It's hitting very hard here in New Hampshire. This small state, 1.4 million people, some estimates are that we are short 20,000 units of housing. Yeah. And there are two reasons for that issue. One is investment. Uh, People with money look around at where they can get the best return and they're looking at housing and they're not so sure how that's going to work out. The second issue involves Republican voters, a lot of Republican primary voters. It's called NIMBY. Suburban affluent Republicans find a a neighborhood they like, a community they like, a little town they like. They get their house and then they pull up the drawbridge. And so given the political reality, what can a governor like you do about the housing crisis and what could a president do? Well, it's a great question. I just finished a roundtable with folks uh, in the real estate uh, agents and brokers who were t- who raised the issue. I'm also having 
uh, at the end of the day, we're doing beers with builders, with home builders, to hear about their concern about the issue. And certainly it's a problem across the country, but I know it's really been exacerbated here in New Hampshire. Um, you know, on the one hand, the uh, housing values are rising rapidly. So if you own a home, you've got a lot of equity and, you know, you're, you're feeling good. But if you're somebody that's looking to buy or rent property and the prices are, you know, getting sky high and out of control, there's, you know, huge demand and, and little supply. But this is not an unusual situation in that, you know, people find a beautiful slice of paradise and that's why they moved, but they don't want anyone else to be there. And look, yeah, I get the balance there of, you know, you want to protect the communities, but you've got to account for growth. I know that this is a, a state that is, uh, you know, is experiencing some growth. It's kind of an aging population that has different housing needs and um, you know, you've got to provide for not just affordable housing, uh, find ways to, um, you know, in, maybe in some cases increase some density to bring down costs. And the, fr- frankly, the state and county governments in many cases, along with the federal government, make housing more expensive because some of the things that they require add something like $30,000 to the cost of a house. Uh, so it's not an easy one to answer. The, um, there's, the, the housing market's been overheated. I think it's starting to cool somewhat because interest rates are going up. And uh, that makes it even harder for people to afford those monthly payments. But yeah, I, I get that it's an issue. And it, it, it's going to take you know, some action at the federal level. But really, it's more of a state and local uh, problem. And it's, it deals with the, uh, the lenders, the home builders, the developers, and the people making the decisions on zoning, planning, and permitting. So there's an argument to be made that the housing crisis divide reflects the divide inside the right, as opposed to the Republicans, but you know, the right as a whole. On one side, you've got the libertarian free market types who say, hey, look, the market will decide. And if there needs to be more housing, people will pay more. And if that drives other people out of the community, well, so be it. And if a community wants to, you know, basically board up its entrance and eventually it shrinks so much that there are no jobs left and there's no school and the school has to shut down. We'll let the school shut down. Let the market decide. Another side says, no, I, I want to live the way I want to live. And I want my community. I want my community to stay good. Now, obviously, we have to have some growth, but I don't want to just have just let the market decide and you know, make it impossible for my kids to live here or to say you have to just move away to where you know, cheaper housing is. I want some help. I want you know, the government to get involved and keep my community. In other words, they're not as worried about how much they earn or how much it costs to live as they're concerned about how they live. What's your message to which side of that divide are, are you on, Governor? Well, that's a that's an interesting question. So I'm a lifelong uh, common sense conservative. I started out in the Reagan revolution. I was a chairman of Youth for Reagan and a Reagan delegate for a couple of times. I come from the kind of pro-business, pro-jobs wing of the party. And so, you know, growth and, uh, and allowing, uh, you know, companies to continue to grow so they can put more people to work. That's In our state, uh, that's what I've done. You know, I came in and um, you know, we were, our economy was 49th out of 50 states. We had raised taxes 43 times in a row and driven out all the jobs and businesses out of the state. And a Gallup poll came out, said 48% of the people wanted to move out of the state, which made me run for governor. I got frustrated enough. And we've been unabashedly pro-business and pro-jobs and pro-growth. And we've uh, got more businesses and more jobs than ever before. And our totally turned our economy around. We went from 49th to 6th, biggest economic turnaround in America. 
Um, so I, you know, I, we, and we did things on housing, you know, there's, we've, we quadrupled the amount of affordable housing, which is more on the lower end, both on rentals and purchases, but, and the higher end, the people, you know, they, they can afford to, you know, pay for a home and move wherever they want. Uh, but the real people that are being squeezed, I think are middle-class kind of what I would call workforce housing and regular folks that are, Get, just like everything else, they're getting squeezed in the middle, and it's people that work hard every day, and it's firefighters and cops and teachers and people like that, that those are the ones I think are feeling most of the pain. Um, and uh, we've got to find ways to encourage uh, without ruining communities or putting too much density or doing things that a community doesn't want. We've got to find a way to provide housing and to make it within reach of uh, of the hardworking people that we that are such a huge part of our economy. I'm sorry, excuse me. So. In the western part of your state, this is an issue out uh, towards Appalachia, you know, far from Baltimore, far from the urban centers. You've got these folks who've lived in these communities for generations. They want to stay there, but the jobs aren't there, and they're watching their communities get hollowed out, and they don't like it. They want the government to do something. They don't want to hear free market forces. They want to hear that the government's going to take actions, for example, maybe on trade, tariffs, protect the businesses that are there, the employers that uh, hire people. It's become... An issue, for example, in Ohio nearby where J.D. Vance won the Republican nomination in many ways campaigning on behalf of these kind of forgotten people, these left out towns. It's something similar has happened in Pennsylvania. What should the Republican Party's message and what's your message to those voters? Well, I think that's what the key is. Um, look, I think there's a huge uh, you know, battle for the soul of the Republican Party that's going on right now. And I think it's far from over. Uh, and we are going to continue to see how it plays out during the 2022 elections. And then we've got another couple of years until the 2024 election. Um, there are certainly different factions with different interests. And, you know, I'm a big believer in Ronald Reagan's bigger tent. Uh, so I, I did just as well among uh, you know, conservatives and base Republicans as Donald Trump did, but I ran 45 points ahead of him by building a bigger tent and by winning over all, nearly all of the independents and a big chunk of discerning Democrats and winning suburban women and minorities. Uh, and I think if we want to be successful as a party, we've got to have a message and a platform that appeals to a broader audience. You know, I remember Ronald Reagan winning 49 out of 50 states because he was a, a governor that was uh, not part of the Washington establishment and who had a hopeful, positive vision for America that not just excited the Republican base, but it uh, won over what we refer to as Reagan Democrats. And he it was a landslide, biggest electoral victory ever. That, you know, that's a whole lot better than losing the White House, the Senate and the House in four years. So, Governor, I owe you an uh, apology. You were on a radio show with my buddy Drew Klein, and you said that you were the Republican who had won the governorship in the bluest state. And living here, you know, on the border of uh, Massachusetts, I, I started to contradict yeah. you. Well, that's what Charlie says. Yeah. But then I realized, oh, oh, you said Republican governor. And so obviously that doesn't include Charlie Baker. Oh, uh, I used to live in Massachusetts. Charlie Baker is a great guy. He is as good a governor as Massachusetts, that backwater political backwater is going to get. But uh, the Republican tent does not include Charlie Baker. He couldn't win a Republican primary for president. He can't win a Republican primary in his own state. My question is whether you believe that big Republican tent is big enough to include Larry Hogan from Maryland. 
Well, you know, I, I would, first of all, Charlie Baker is a friend of mine, and I think he's done a terrific job as, as governor of Massachusetts, and certainly much better than, uh, you know, typically they would only have far-left Democrats. And we had, Charlie was, uh, I think, has done a great job, and he was, you know, reelected as governor. I've served with him in the Governor's Association. Uh, I just actually uh, had uh, dinner with him in uh, Massachusetts. And, you know, I, I, I'm sorry to see Charlie not run for office again, but uh, I think he's still going to contribute and be a part of the discussion. And we need all those voices in the Republican Party. And, um, you know, Charlie Baker and I have been the two most uh, popular governors in America for eight straight years. So, yes, maybe that uh, the party does need more of that. <laughs> you know, that's the perfect lead in to the question I was about to ask. You mentioned you know, of the past five years or so, the uh, most popular governors, eight of the 10 most popular governors almost every year are Republicans. And as you so modestly pointed out, you happen to be one near the top, Charlie Baker, uh, even our own Chris Sununu kind of gets in there sometimes. Uh, he's yeah. in the, he's in the, he's hanging around the basket. Yeah. And, and Phil Scott and right. Vermont. Right. And so here's my question. That was true. Even when president Trump was at his polling low points when the Republicans lost 2018, you know, very badly. Why is it that the brand of Republican governors can stay strong even when the brand of the Republican Party is weak? And is there something the party can learn uh, out of this? Well, I think, first of all, uh, yeah, that 2018 was a pretty uh, rough year. It was a huge blue wave uh, and a blue year, and people were getting wiped out across the country. Uh, I was in, uh, uh, you know, a very tough state that Donald Trump lost by 33. I, I won by 12. I was ran 45 points ahead of him. So I think people do need to take a look at how you broaden the tent and how you get more people attract more. Uh, you know, it's about addition and multiplication. You got to get to 50 percent. How do we appeal to more people? I think what's similar, we're different guys. I think Sununu's doing a terrific job here in New Hampshire and, and, um, and Baker in Massachusetts and Phil Scott in Vermont and myself. We are and have been. You know, we have the highest approval ratings. It's not just popularity. It's like we like the job they're doing. And, and I think the reason is that because by necessity in our states, we have to work together and work across the aisle to get things done. We have to work on bipartisan common sense solutions or we can't accomplish anything. Uh, you know, 70 percent of my legislature are progressive Democrats, but I still, you know, totally turned our state around. It turns out that Republicans, Democrats and independents like that. What they don't like is kind of the. Uh, the angry, loud voices on the extremes of both parties that all they do is yell and, you know, have battles on Twitter every day as opposed to, uh, hey, just roll up your sleeves and get to work and get the job done. Okay, so I called my buddy Harry Potter. He waved his magic wand. And on January 20th, 2021, it's not President Joe Biden. It's President Larry Hogan. What would have been different about the past 18 months with a Hogan presidency? And for example, would there have been as much bicycling with a President Larry Hogan as we've seen? Uh, probably not as much bicycling, uh, although maybe I should. Uh, but yeah, uh, you know, look, I, I, I would say uh, I think what you'd see is exactly what I've done in Maryland. You know, we cut taxes eight years in a row by $4.8 We took the, the huge deficit. I think during COVID early on, there, were, there was a need for some stimulus when everybody, all the, 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 what we did in our state, we cut taxes by $1.8 billion for uh, hardworking people that were struggling and for small businesses. And that was an, in and of a, itself a, 
a, a, a relief package because it helped people keep more of their own money in their own pockets. So that's what we would do for one thing. We had a great COVID response, one of the best in America. We had 86% approval of our handling of the virus. Uh, we kept everybody safe without closing down all the businesses. And we, um, you know, so I think we found the right balance there. But I think the economy, we'd be in different shape because we'd be unabashedly uh, pro-business and pro-jobs. We'd be, uh, instead of reckless spending, uh, we'd be getting uh, the deficit under control and we'd be cutting taxes for people that were struggling. And, uh, you know, it was a huge, like I said earlier, we had the biggest economic turnaround in America in our very difficult state. Uh, I say, imagine what I could get done with a Republican legislature or a Republican Congress. Will there still be troops in Afghanistan? You know, I think everybody thought that we had been in Afghanistan for too long. And obviously Trump was uh, working to pull them out before Joe Biden did. But the way we went about it was just horrendous. I mean, it was a completely botched, you know, you pulled the, the guys out with the guns first and then have mass chaos as people try to escape. I mean, we should have never given up the air base. Uh, we should have left the soldiers there to have a, a more strategic and more well thought out plan. I think this was politics. I think the president didn't listen to his generals. And as a result, we saw the disastrous failures of the pullout. But I think most people thought it was time for us to get out of Afghanistan, but we didn't do it right. What about Ukraine? Same policy as Biden or something different? I think that, uh, you know, the, the failed botched uh, pullout of Afghanistan emboldened some of our, our enemies around the world, especially Putin, who didn't feel any reluctance to move forward and with this uh, completely unacceptable aggress- aggression into Ukraine. Um, but it was predictable. And uh, we saw it coming, and he was amassing the troops on the border, and President Biden, you know, dragged his feet and didn't take action and waited too long. Uh, months went by uh, before he actually started to impose sanctions. And it was like, we'll put our toe in the water and we'll do a little bit and then we'll come back. Now we're going to make more sanctions and maybe we'll give them a little bit of help on the arm side. And now maybe we'll send them something else. Should have been right away, throw all the sanctions at them, give them all the, you know, the military equipment assistance and you know, humanitarian, uh, you know, healthcare assistance we could. I don't want to put troops on the ground there, but we, we could have acted stronger and faster because we need to be still standing up for, you know, our allies and standing up to our enemies. And we've got to, uh, you know, whenever we can stand up uh, for freedom and democracy around the world. So, Governor, one last political question, and, and I, please allow me a second to filibuster, if you don't mind, because uh, it's kind of long, but I also yeah. still think it's really important. Neighbor. There's a theory about... How the Republican Party ended up with Trump that goes like this. For cycle after cycle, the base was asked to support nominees for president who just didn't like them. Whether it was W. Bush and his compassionate conservative. Why do you need compassionate conservatism? Because conservative conservatism is mean. It's bad. John McCain, oh my gosh, you're called the base racist all the time. He went to South Carolina, pandered about the Confederate flag. Then after he lost, gave a speech saying, yeah, they were a bunch of racists to begin with. And Mitt Romney, ah. You know, it was just like, who are these people? It was yeah. the, the base was being called deplorables by their own party's nominees and 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 media leaders yeah. before Hillary ever used the world word. That's how it feels to the base. And so they turned to Trump. So at least it's a guy who likes them. And when they look out at candidates, you know, mainstream candidates, fairly unfairly, people like you, they see someone who's on the team that brought them W. McCain. You know, Romney, the team of Republicans who don't like the Republican base. Are they right? Well, I, I certainly wasn't one of them. I, like I said earlier, uh, I'm a lifelong uh, conservative from the Reagan uh, movement and have been my entire life. And uh, 
I did just as well or better than Trump did with the base. So I never took them for granted. I never called them names and I never went after them. Do you agree they got left behind by the leaders of the party? No, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that. I mean, I think, uh, you know, there were people in that mo- that side of the movement that wrote off all of the establishment folks and called them rhinos and Democrats. And there were people on the other side that were attacking the base. But I didn't do either one. I was uh, I, I brought together the base and the traditional Republicans and the independents and swing Democrats, which is exactly what Ronald Reagan did and what we need to do to be successful. Because if you just play, I mean, Donald Trump did a great job of playing to the base and fire them up. But he also lost all those other groups that I won. And successful politics, you have to get to 50% plus one. We have to convince a wider group of people that we have the right ideas, not just the base. If the base is happy, but you lose the White House and the Senate and the Congress and you lose governors and state legislative bodies, the base isn't going to be happy anymore because we have a Democratic monopoly. And as usual, Governor Hogan, I lied. There's always one more question. You mentioned you're going to have a beer with uh, builders. When someone else is buying... What does Larry Hogan order? Well, you know, I, I typically might drink a bourbon, but, uh, you know, beers with builders. I, I mean, Woodford Reserve, maybe, or Maker's Mark, something like that. But, but I'm definitely uh, not opposed to drinking a beer. So uh, I'm very happy to start my day with uh, donuts and, and realtors and end with beers with builders. Governor Larry Hogan, thanks so much for being part of the New Hampshire Journal podcast. Yeah, thank you very much. And now a quick minute or two of rank punditry before we let you go here on the podcast. And thanks again to uh, Governor Larry Hogan. Uh, It's been a bad week for President Biden in the polls, no doubt about it. And people openly talking about how he's too old to serve. Not a shock for me. The first piece I wrote when Biden came to New Hampshire for the first time of this cycle, I was at uh, an event somewhere in southern New Hampshire at a, a house party. And the takeaway when it was over was, oh, my gosh, that guy is really old. But uh, had to beat Trump, so everyone ignored it. Now here it is, uh, front and center. And here is what I find fascinating. Uh, you know, Hampshire Journal, we're a center-right news organization, award-winning news organization. Thank you very much. Uh, but we are, no doubt about it, from the center-right, you know, like the Wall Street Journal, whatever. <laughs> a little small, a little more modest, but you get my point. But we have, fortunately, have had in the past uh, plenty of Democrats who've uh, talked to us and our reporters, given us stuff on background or direct quotes, I have never run into a wall of silence like I ran into when we started asking Democrats in New Hampshire, tell us on the record that Joe Biden is fit to serve and that you will support him in 2024. Tell us on the record. Not a single member of the federal delegation, not Senator Hassan, Senator Shaheen, Representative Custer, Pappas, none of them would say it on the record. And as of this recording, perhaps something has changed, but... We keep checking their Twitter feed, their public statements, you know, interviews with you know, left-to-center outlets that they go to because they know they're not going to get tough questions like uh, NHPR or the Conquer Monitor, and nothing. No, the silence from Democrats in New Hampshire about Biden's ability to stay president and their willingness to publicly support him is astonishing. Now, if you read the piece at nhjournal.com, you saw there were some quotes. Uh, Representative Casey Conley, who, by the way, is the kind of uh, center-left Democrat that frustrated Republicans <laughs> love to see in the House. Uh, you know, he's he gave an, I thought, a, as good a defense of where Biden is, of course, you know, blaming Trump, blah, blah, blah. But it was, it was, it was the, the stuff you're supposed to say, you know, in a partisan conversation. Uh, Senator Lou D'Alessandro, 
I mean, Senator Lou will say anything. So he, he was great. But uh, it was thin, very thin to the point of virtually non-existent. And that is not an accident. That's not uh, just a, a coincidence. You know, the fact is, the impact that Joe Biden is likely to have on the election in New Hampshire is not good for Democrats. And as I've said many times on this podcast, the only thing we know about what's going to happen between now and November 3rd is that Joe Biden isn't going to get a day younger. Now, I don't know if he's going to be calling Latinx people tacos like his wife does. I don't know if he's going to be doing word salads like uh, uh, Kamala Harris does. I just know he's not going to get any younger. This isn't going to get better. And um, this is a, a real problem. And, and the people are whistling past the graveyard and saying, oh, it doesn't matter because Democrats have this abortion issue. Democrats have this gun issue or Democrats have the, their best issue. And I mean this sincerely, their best issue, crazy Republicans. I mean, the more they can keep Republican crazy on front and center, the more Donald Trump talks, the more they can get fringe people who want to make illegal abortion up to and including self-abuse. That's a little reference you Catholics will get. Uh, good, you know, that's that's good for them. But man, compared to what's happening with Biden, I've never seen numbers like this. And I know I've said this on a previous podcast, but 30% approval rating from a left-leaning pollster? You know, this isn't you know, Rasmussen research. 30% approval, 64% of Democrats don't want him to run again. 90% or more of Democrats under 30 don't want him to run again. I just, I think there's a lot, first of all, there's a lot of media in New Hampshire that are just ignoring the topic, but there are a lot of political folks who think somehow this is just going to shake out. Check out, don't believe me, Michael Graham, just some guy mouthing off on a podcast who runs a news site. Don't believe quotes from him. Watch what Democrats are doing. Are Democrats in New Hampshire rallying around Biden? Are they talking about him? I mean, we're one step away from, you would have to waterboard Chris Pappas to get him to say something nice about uh, Joe Biden going forward and his ability to lead as president. That is not good for the Democratic brand and for their fortunes in New Hampshire. It is not a coincidence that this week, independent congressional analysis groups like Political Report, et cetera, are now saying that solidly Democratic districts like the 2nd District of New Hampshire are potentially in danger and Republicans could pick them up. Thank you for picking up the New Hampshire Journal podcast. Thank you for sharing it with your friends. I never asked this, but if you want to five-star the thing on the podcast on the iPad, look, anything you say that's good spreads the word. Greatly appreciate it. And of course, you got to get that free subscription for $4.99. Open up your newsletter. There's the box right there. Thanks so much for listening. For New Hampshire Journal, I am Michael Graham.